The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, over and over again. Anxiety isn't easy, but it can absolutely be helpful. We know that from science, from years of work of the people who study the brain, our emotions, our relationships. And we know that from anecdotal evidence, from the people I speak to on the show, from the listeners who reach out to me. Later today, we'll hear from listener Andrea Para, who reached out to me a few months ago to explain why the anxious achiever was resonating with her as a first-generation immigrant. Stay tuned for that conversation in the second part of the show. But first, we'll hear from Dr. Wendy Suzuki. She's a neuroscientist at New York University who studies neuroplasticity and how anxiety can affect us. She's also the author of Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion. Here's my conversation with Dr. Wendy Suzuki. Hi, Dr. Wendy Suzuki. Welcome. Thank you so much. Well, I want to dive right into good anxiety. I have to admit, when I saw the title of your book, I was like, I did a little happy dance. <laughs> and um, and I love the book. But Oh, thank you. Yeah. Let's dive right in. What What is good anxiety? Yeah. I call anxiety good because from an evolutionary perspective, the emotion of anxiety and that underlying physiological stress response that always comes with it, it actually evolved to protect us. So at its core, anxiety is protective and even critical for our survival. So you can say, okay, got that. But I'm sorry, but I don't feel protected one little tiny little bit from my anxiety. Right. I feel I hate it. I want to run away from my anxiety. Hate it. Want to run away. Want to kick it out the door. And my answer to that is that I get you. I'm there with you. And that is because we as a society, as a world, our collective anxiety level, the volume of it is just turned way up to super max, you know, above the, the highest rung because of name your favorite stressor, COVID, the news cycle, global warming, uh, um, Instagram feeds, whatever is uh, schools, whatever's stressing you out. And so, you know, too much of even a good thing is bad. So anxiety is good because it alerts yes. us. You say anxiety yes. is data. Yes. How how do we just practically, and, and I'd like to focus this conversation for people. I mean, I, I think the listeners of our show, they were anxious before COVID. You know, they may have been born anxious. So, so those of us who sort of travel with anxiety, I think it's really powerful for us to know how to channel our anxiety into something good. So here are my steps. Number one is 
let's all just agree that our collective anxiety levels are too high and let's learn how to dial that back. And so let me start with two strongly science-based things that you can do right now to decrease that feeling of anxiety. Number one is here is the hack to activate your natural de-stressing part of your nervous system. First, did you know that every single one of us has a part of our nervous system that was designed to de-stress us? The official name is the parasympathetic nervous system, and it was designed to um, be equal and opposite to that fight or flight nervous system, which mm-hmm. for some reason has much more, uh, has a much better publicity agent than the de-stressing part of our nervous system, the parasympathetic or rest and digest part of your nervous system, slows down your heart rate, slows down your respiration, and shunts the blood to your digestion and reproductive organs so you can enjoy that Sunday brunch. You can enjoy a nice meal. And so how do you do that? Quickest way to do that is deep breathing, Mm. consciously slowing down your breathing. You cannot consciously slow down your heart rate. You cannot consciously shut your blood to your digestion and reproductive organs, but you can consciously breathe slowly. There's a reason why monks for thousands of years have turned to deep, slow breathing Mm -hmm. as a way to bring them into meditation, which brings them into that place of calm. And here's how I recommend you do it because it's easy to do, easy to remember. It's called boxed breathing. Mm -hmm. It is a four count inhaling. It is holding at the top for four counts, exhaling for four counts, and holding it at the bottom Mm -hmm. for four counts. It is easy to do for all of your listeners out there that have kids. You can practice it with your kids. You can send your kids out with this little shield of de-stressing activity uh, when they start to get stressed. Nobody even knows you're really doing it. So it is my number one go-to. And there's a lot of science to back that this is this is a calming activity and, and will decrease your stress levels if you if you can do it. Hmm. It seems to me that you're of the school that there is a place where our body brain space is is engaged enough, right? We're sort of alert and we feel just stressed enough to maximize our attention and our focus. This is controversial because I think some scientists will say any anxiety is just our monkey mind acting up and it's a habit and we can calm it down. But you disagree with that, it seems. I disagree with that because... You know, this activation energy that comes with anxiety, it is an activation of the brain. You know, think about when you performed the best. And Mm. for me, it is when I was nervous. I was a little bit scared. This was a big moment. And um, that's not to say that I haven't gone too far over and gotten too scared and then and then all hell breaks loose and I don't do well. But there are many, many examples in my life and in the book because I am my own best example of anxiety and when it works and when it doesn't. So let's talk about what your brain was doing while your brain was was, was channeling that good anxiety, that, that yes. fear. What is your brain yeah. doing then to make you perform? Yeah. So, you know, there is, uh, this Dotson law of, of brain activation where if you want to perform at your max, you are not at your 
couch Netflix level of activity. I'm right. sorry. That just does not work. Also, you might be happy on the couch watching Netflix, but that level of, of activation that is brain and body activation will not help you perform well. You need to get that energy and that energy comes from a little bit of fear, a little bit of activation, and that can come from your own anxiety. That pushes us up to the activation level that psychologists have told us will be our max. Now, the danger is we all live on this knife edge mm. because if it goes too far, then, oh my God, I forgot. What was the first line I was going to say? Right. Uh, what, what, what comes next? Um, because we know that stress and high levels of, of um, uh, uh, stress hormone can literally interfere with the performance of your brain's hippocampus, critical for long-term memory. Mm. But how do you, how do you, you know, how do you stay on that knife's edge and yes. stay focused? And what I say is practice. Okay. Put yourself in those situations. Uh, um, know what it feels like to use that activation energy. And I've been there enough that I crave that. If I'm not nervous before a talk, it's like something's wrong. Am I taking this not seriously enough? Because mm -hmm. I know I'm not going to have that energy. I'm not going to generate that energy. So it is being able to use that energy. In fact, call on your anxiety. Where's that fear? Where's the fear? Because I need that fear to, to motivate me. And then how do I practice living in that fear, in that activation to keep myself on that, that track that gives me energy, um, but doesn't, you know, spill over. It is practice. In your book, you tell the story of a woman you call Monica, who is very successful. Um, and, and, and I really identified with her because she sort of has these obsessive tendencies that lead her to worry and question a lot. But she sees that it's a, it's a business asset and that when she's under pressure, she's, she's, She's identifying ahead of time the pitfalls. I call this seeing around corners, and I think yes. it's a real superpower of anxious achievers. Right. But yeah, but you write that her her what if list, which is just anxiety, right? Like what if this happens, is really a tool that helps her do a more effective and complex evaluation of any business proposition at hand. Yes, I'm curious how listeners. You know, because because that anxiety is hard to live with every day. I mean, give it, right before a speech, yes, I get it. But if every business meeting brings up that what if list, it can be very stressful. But talk about how Monica came to realize that this stress, this anxiety was actually helping her in her business. So Monica was inspired uh, by a lawyer that I met at a dinner party. It was a birthday party uh, while I was writing the book. And so I was telling this uh, very high powered lawyer that is writing a book about anxiety. And her first words out of her mouth was, ah, well, I'm the high paid lawyer that I am because of my anxiety. I, I've used it for years and years. And um, I said, oh, do tell. What, what's your <laughs> secret? And uh, so she said, you know, I've always been anxious. In fact, lawyers are paid to worry about all these possible things. Well, she took it to heart. And um, yes, it weighed her down. But what she realized is that uh, what she can do is instead of just obsessing over all the worries, she turned every single one of those worries into a to-do. 
And so the worries were about, you know, she was defending somebody. Um, what if the other lawyer comes with this strategy, that strategy, the other strategy? Uh, what if the judge does this, that, and that? These are all things that, that came up in her lawyer mind, but that are addressable. Or, or she could decide, okay, actually that one, it probably will not be, but, but let's order them and let's address them in order, making her check all the boxes. And, and I love using that example because you can see that, that all of those worries, having a great argument for each one of them would make her a, a wonderful lawyer. And now I ask everybody, what can they do to transform that what if list for their children's school, for their professional life, for their family life, for their love life, you know, into things that you can do to uh, address each one of those concerns. And you start to realize, well, I, I would really, I would be really on top of things if I did all of that. I would feel more in control. I would feel great. And uh, it would actually take up my time. So I didn't have time to worry about them because I was too busy taking care of them. And I love that image, uh, that, that mental image, because it transforms for me in a second, the, the worry and the, just the wasting of time that comes with anxiety into immediate productivity. So how do you cultivate that? I mean, I think, oh, God, that sounds so appealing. I mean, I love the idea of shifting the rumination and the restless energy yes, yes. of the what if into something good. Do you literally sit down and write? What is the process? So here's my process, because uh, th- this was one that that was is so common for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, right before I'm about to fall asleep, I... You know, there's, yeah. oh, what if I didn't do that? Oh, I didn't do that well enough. Oh, God, you know, they, they're not happy with this, or maybe they won't be happy with that. And so then I would be up for hours worrying about that, couldn't shut it off. And don't get me wrong, I still have that come up. But what I do now, because I've practiced it, is I tell myself, the next morning, I am going to take care of each one of those, and I'm going to do something about all of these. So I note them in my about to go to sleep mind. And, and it does, the more you do it, and of course you have to do it. If you, if you don't do it the next day, then, then it just keeps coming up. But if you know, for me in my going to sleep anxiety, because I noted it, I did it the next day. It's like, ah, I I have a plan. I know that's going to be done. I don't have to worry about it right now. So it's, it's getting into, it, it is starting a new habit starting something good and and having success at it did you did, did that feel good at checking things off and i don't know about you but i love making lists and then like checking it and like scribbling it out because that is done and that is what that is the satisfaction that you get uh when you start putting this into practice in your life so it's changing any what if that comes up from your anxiety um, and and being able to change it into an action. A to-do. Um, yeah, from a, a what-if to a to-do. Exactly. So let's talk about, you, you write very movingly about changing your own mindset about money and scarcity and risk. I think this is something that a lot of people can relate to because money was a real anxiety focus for you. And 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 you wrote that, I, I realized I had the power to calm my anxiety about money. And it was a game changer. Anxiety was a warning system for you when it came to beliefs about money 
that kind of needed to change. How did you do this? So, you know, um, the way that I did it was to really try and step back and take a bigger look. And, and it, it really boils down. How did I do it? I did it by having much more awareness and gratitude of what I have. Um, and, and so the biggest way always, even to this day, I, I still uh, deal with this, start to get, you know, worried and no need to worry. It's like, am I able to donate to a cause? Do, do I have it better than others that I, I could, I could give to either, you know, food banks or homeless shelters, especially now in the pandemic? And the answer is always yes, I can. And so that ability to say, actually, I can use my own empathy to, to say, yes, this is a big problem. And actually, when I look at it from that point of view, yes, I have this amount to be able to donate or, or, you know, to, to, to give to all these different causes. And that just shifts my worry over, you know, some ridiculous thing I'm worrying about. Um, that maybe I may or may not need hmm. to say, actually, I'm doing fine. Um, and also, you know, big failures where I did lose a big chunk of money mm-hmm. and, and I was fine. Um, but I was able to be grateful for that experience that I gave myself and to really live the idea, not just say it, that you learn much more from your failures, especially money, money related failures than you do from your money related successes. I think you learn very little <laughs> from your money related su- really? successes. <laughs> I think so. But I guess what you're doing is you're also holding the anxiety at arm's length and looking at it and asking it a hard question of, yeah, can you afford to do this? Yes. And so what is the anxiety about money really about? Yeah. For me, it was about, you know, uh, it was about culture. Mm. Uh, my parents were always careful about money. There was always, um, you know, a fear that there wouldn't be enough. Mm-hmm. And if you grow up with that, and part of that is good. I've always mm-hmm. been frugal and I've always been extra, extra careful with, with money, but you can take that, that concern and that fear too far so that you don't give yourself the option to do things that could be very powerful or, or, um, game changing for yourself because you're too afraid that maybe you know, the checking account might go, go down to a level that you're, you're uncomfortable with. My money mantra for so many years was, <gasps> Oh no, <laughs> that was my mantra. And, and I changed that from, I, I first, you know, test the waters. What would it feel like if I changed it from, <gasps> Oh no, to plenty? Mm. Look, Wendy, you have plenty. You are doing so well. You are, you know, you are fine. And so what doors are you shutting because you are living like you're, you know, right on the edge of, of a bankruptcy, which mm-hmm. is not the case and not at this level where you can use your money to do things that are powerful for you, powerful for your community, powerful for your life goals. And I thought, ooh, that, that sounds exciting. Let me try this plenty idea. And you know what? It was not only, um, much less 
anxiety ridden because if your idea, your your baseline idea about money is, oh no, <laughs> that 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 tends to spark anxiety. But if your mantra is plenty, you have plenty, you're fine. In fact, you have enough. Donate. What what can you donate to? Because you have plenty. That not only opens up this area of generosity that you were cutting off because you were too scared, but it opens up all sorts of possibilities in the way that you can dream and create Mm. in your life. What's the neuroscience there? I mean, are you habit replacing or I love, first of all, the image of going from, (gasps) which I think, (laughs) God, I can relate to that too. Plenty. What's the neuroscience behind that? So, you know, I think um, I love the psychology experiments on the power of mindset. Mm -hmm. And it is just the power of your belief system that changes not just how your brain is working, but how your body responds. And this is a great example, because for me, for many different years, the idea of, of money and whether I had enough would activate my anxiety and my stress system. I would, I would start to get a little bit worried thinking about money. Am I doing it right? Did I get enough on my taxes? Mm-hmm. And, and it would actually make me like a miser in my own self image in, yeah. in my mindset and switching to plenty. Not only was it more true to where I was, but it, it released me from this feeling of every time I thought or planned about money, having this natural stress and anxiety response to an opportunity to activation, not of my fight or flight response, but activation of my creative brain. Mm. Because what can I do with this power, which is money, which is power, that will be delicious and wonderful Mm -hmm. and inspiring? That, okay, so the studies on mindset don't address that directly, Mm -hmm. but it's the same idea that that this power that has been studied not only shifts how you think about things, but it shifts how your body responds to things like the idea of money. And that is very, very powerful. So in that way, can anxiety foster creativity? Oh, yes. Actually, there is a whole chapter on creativity uh, inspired by uh, my my dear friend, Julie Burstein, who wrote a book called Spark, How Creativity Works. Mm. She was the mastermind behind Studio 360, which uh, they oh, interviewed yeah. so many, you know, wonderful artists. And she describes different kinds of creativity that so often start in fear, um, anger, heartache, um, um, even disability. So poets that, that had a lifelong dyslexia, but caused them to, because of their dyslexia, they had to read 10 times slower, mm-hmm. which gave them 10 times more appreciation of the rhythm of language. And so it's really, you start to realize, gosh, everything that's causing me anxiety, um, it's also an opportunity to to try and do things in a different way. Maybe this first direction isn't working. That's why I'm anxious. That's why I'm fearful. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying different things. And you read that book and you realize, wow, 
you know, maybe, maybe I'm the next, you know, interviewee on, on Studio 360 because boy, I have a lot of anxiety <laughs> and fear. And she talks about the tragic gap, which is that deep, dark chasm mm-hmm. between where you are right now and what you want to create as a creative in this world. It does not exist. And you have this scary, scary, you know, task of creating that out of this chasm. And and that goes for all the anxieties that come up in our lives. How am I going to create the family that I want? How am I going to create the job, my dream job from this crappy job that I have right now? And these are all opportunities to create because those barriers are really opportunities to do something different, to do something in a different way to um, maybe do something in a way that nobody on earth has done before. So Wendy, tell me about the brain's attention network. So attention and focus is so important. It is really based in our prefrontal cortex, that part of the brain right behind the forehead. There are, it's a network. It's not just one brain area. A a major part, and just for uh, simplicity's sake, is it is centered in the prefrontal cortex. This is the part of your brain that allows you to shift and focus your attention to different things that come up in your environment. You could either do it consciously um, and, uh, you know, if somebody says, pay attention to my finger, you can focus on the finger. But if a, a bright, shiny uh, object pops up, uh, that will automatically attract all of our attention. Uh, all of that is, is determined and it is um, enacted by uh, the prefrontal cortex. And a lot of our anxiety, and I talk about it a lot in the book, is learning how to redirect your attentional network from, um, those anxiety invoking things that, um, that, that you're not doing anything about. They just feel like these big fears that you're kind of obsessing over to other things. Uh, we talked about, you know, uh, or we will talk about action that you can do to address fears to uh, other activities, to ways that you can um, use your creativity uh, to get around those blockages that that might be the focus of your fears. Does anxiety hijack the attention network? Is that what's happening or what's happening when, I, when we're overcome with anxiety? Yeah. So when, uh, when we're overcome with anxiety, there is a high level of stress hormones in our system, which will tend to shut down the functioning of the prefrontal cortex, which is not good. You never want that because that helps you shift your attention where you need it. And also it helps you make, make decisions. Mm. So, um, and where does it go? Well, your, um, bra- your brain's amygdala, which is important and it's controlling your fear responses, uh, tend to take over. And what happens there is your, habitual, your kind of reflex responses tend to take over. Not always the best response. Sometimes it will help in, in a real emergency if you have to run out of a burning building. But often, um, what you really want in situations, uh, like that are, um, in non kind of bodily dangerous situations is a good prefrontal cortex mm. where you can, um, use your focus, use your decision making skills, um, at their height. And yes, that, that, uh, too much anxiety is not good for that. 
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. You heard it straight from the scientist. Anxiety can be a good thing. Now to a conversation I had with Andrea Parra. She's a listener who reached out to describe the ways being a first-generation immigrant caused her anxiety and also helped her achieve and excel in school and in her career. She now works in R&D at a large consumer goods company, a job she loves in part because of the fact that her success at that job is due to really understanding people. She was born and raised in Venezuela, but today lives and works in Brazil. I started by asking her to explain why she Well, first off, you know, I really loved your message. I feel, you know, deeply connected to the fact that, you know, there is someone out there who's not glorifying success, you know, that you, 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 I felt that you just acknowledge, you know, the struggles that we all have on our day to day and also on our professional lives. And the reason I reached out was, you know, I've had the feeling, well, first off, it took me a while. So it was about, you know, maybe a month before I hit that message on, on LinkedIn. I've been editing it like on the, on, the, on the little screen and before I took the decision to send it. But it was about acknowledging the struggles of someone with a bit of a different background. I felt, you know, we've heard a lot of you know, stories on, you know, people, you know, in the US or Europe, but I feel like that first generation immigrant, like the people who actually went off and left their country, you know, we face so many different kind of struggles. I mean, we leave the safety of our home to look for better opportunities and many times like pushed by an external crisis. And then you're kind of like left out in the world trying to do what's best for yourself. So that, you know, generates a lot of anxiety and worry. And, you know, what I feel overall is that, you know, that that message really resonated with me and with her content, which is being like an anxious overachiever who mm-hmm. was trying to just do what you know what you could in the world to just get to a better place. So you are you grew up in Venezuela. What is your story? You do not live there anymore. Were you educated there? How long did you stay? In my case, I was yes born and raised uh, in Venezuela. I grew up there. Uh, all of my you know my friends, I lived there. I think until I was twenty three. But what was very particular about, you know, my story is that ever since I was like 12, I knew I had to get out. Hmm. So imagine being this 12-year-old girl, like I think it was in middle school, when I already knew, like in the back of my mind, that I needed to craft for myself an exit plan. How did you know that? Why? What what, what happened? (laughs) So... As I grew up, I, you know, I saw like everything I knew, like crumble apart, like on my particular case, I saw how, you know, 
opportunities were being cut. Like, for example, I saw the effects of hyperinflation. Like, for example, my dad, he was, uh, you know, middle class. We were very well off. But as time went by and the crisis worsened and you saw things like political persecution, you saw things as, you know, the shortage of basic things such as, you know, medicine or water or electricity. Imagine that, you know, it was in my house, but I didn't know if at any point, you know, the electricity was going to be cut off. So it was very unstable. So I grew up scared of, you know, my life developing on this country where I had no idea if I was going to be able to have a future for myself. <laughs> so it was, it was very scary. And I grew up anxious and worried about, you know, anything could happen at, at any time. Um, and that's how sort of what, you know, you know, and you get exposed to. I think that's one of the positive things about globalization that, I, you know, you did research, you you find out that that reality that you're at is not the only one out there. Mm. So you grow up kind of wanting to, you know, escape, you know, the circle that you're at and go somewhere else may, where maybe you don't have that sort of difficulty. Like a more stable world. You knew that there was a more stable reality out there, but you had to yeah. get to that place. And that I assume was not easy. <laughs> no, I mean, and I remember this very clearly, like um, being 12, this idea on my mind that, you know, plan number one was to get out and to leave. And plan number two was, you know, making plan A work. <laughs> so it was kind of like no chance of that not working. I knew that in order to like have a life and support my family, because I also wanted that for them, like being stable and living somewhere else where, you know, they felt peace and not having to face as many difficulties. I had to make that work. So for me, I studied every language that I could. I graduated like top of my class. I tried to find the absolute best job that I could. Uh, so overall, you know, I, I felt like I had to be the very best I could be. <laughs> like I have to be like, if there's like I, a bone in my body that has potential, I'm going to squeeze it out because I need to get every opportunity that I can so I can leave this situation and also be of help to everyone that is around me. Obviously, you had demanding circumstances that were out of your control. Do you think, though, that there's a part of you who just is that person? I, I ask myself the same question and my, and my guests all the time. Like, is this just who we are? Or is it that we have external factors that we need to sort of push through or both? Hmm. I do believe that it is part of who I am. Mm -hmm. And I do think that these circumstances, like, tune it up by 100. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So maybe, of course, you know, you kind of have that in you, but the fact that you see with your own eyes, like your context falling apart, it just kind of tune it up. I remember, you know, growing up, that's all I could think about. You know, the fact that if I do not manage to get an offer or to emigrate or to have a different future, I felt that there would come to a point where it would be very difficult to leave. And, and maybe let me explain that a bit. It is just because, you know, in Venezuela, I think year on year, and I do see that with, you know, friends and family who, you know, are still out there, it becomes increasingly difficult, you know, to have a stable life. So I thought, you know, I'm, you know, I'm on a ticking clock <laughs> to be able to, to do that and to, you know, to get a job offer or to leave or, you know, to leave somewhere. And I eventually got that for myself. 
But the weird thing is that 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 feeling of you need to push yourself or you need to get somewhere else, it just doesn't go away. Right. Because now you are safely in Brazil. Are your family all in Brazil as well? Yes. I have my mom and my brother here and um, we're all safe in Brazil. <laughs> so you've done it. You've done it. Yeah. But I guess the question is, why doesn't it feel like I have? <laughs> How does it show up for you? How does your anxiety show up for you? Well, I, I think that, you know, there's the typical, you know, work anxiety, imposter syndrome. You know, I wonder if I'm doing things right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then in the more personal side is, you know, I wonder if I'm, am I doing enough? Like, I, am I preparing enough for that next big crisis? you know, that is going to show up around the corner? Or is it, you know, that maybe am I stopping doing something that I should be doing in order to prepare myself? I mean, this was horrible because I remember being a teenager or even, you know, as I grew up and I got to see the world, uh, you know, I, I was blessed and privileged to, um, you know, in my work to be able to travel to other countries. So I met people from the U.S., you know, from even Asia, Mexico and other parts of Latin America and other realities. And I saw that it was very particular for the people who have been to through a crisis or some, you know, life changing experience to not have that carefree mindset. I mean, I remember, you know, when this was this meeting of people like across the world and the conversations that were on the table were, you know, where am I going to go to the next concert or what am I going to go at nights for drinks or, you know, it, w- it was just a different mindset. And I was there, you know, worried about sending my brother off to college <laughs> or, you know, saving enough, to, you know, to, you know, buy plane tickets for my family or just worrying that they have enough to, you know, to eat or, you know, to supply their needs or in case something happens or someone needs to go to the hospital, then I have to have enough money for that. So you just, you, I, I guess that you are really hard on, I think, money. Mm-hmm. Money is, you know, a big topic of anxiety for, for me and I'm sure that for, for many others, but it, particularly in the use of money on things that, you know, are merely for pleasure versus something that's purposeful or useful. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Do you find that these fears, these anxieties show up in how you operate at work or how you manage people? And is that something you observe? That's an excellent question. I would love to bring my manager here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so maybe I, I think that she knows, like in my direct relationship with my manager, I mean, she's an excellent individual, and I love her to bits. Uh, And she's you know, very open about, you know, hearing about anxiety and hearing about things that worry me. And the great thing about her is that she calms me down. It's like, hey, you are prepared for this. You got this. You're amazing. I mean, I do have the blessing of having that person mm. who's like my rock. And also it turns out, uh, you know, and my, my leaders and, you know, everyone on my team. I think that's something that I hope <laughs> is noticed or is mostly internal pressure. I do. And I do believe that because of my experiences, and I know what a burnout is, I know what not being able to sleep is, mm-hmm. I know what's having physical consequences of your anxiety. I wouldn't wish that on anyone, you know, <laughs> it's like, I just yeah. do whatever I can. So my team is comfortable, and they're open. And you know, they bring stuff to me, because I wouldn't want anyone to go through with that. 
Well, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for your time coming on and I and I wish you I wish you all the best. Well, thanks, Maura. Thank you so much for having me and for the visibility on these very important topics. I can't stop saying that. <laughs> thank you. That's it for today's show. The Anxious Achiever is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krenko. Many thanks to all our guests for sharing their stories with us. On an upcoming show, we'll be looking deeper at imposter syndrome and how it affects your mental health. To share your story about imposter syndrome, send us a voice memo or video to anxiousachievermail at gmail.com. You can tweet me at moraam or reach me on LinkedIn. Send me a message. I promise I'll respond. If you love the show, tell your friends, subscribe, and leave a review. From LinkedIn, this is Maura Aaron's Mealing.